Please remain standing in honor of God's word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter. And this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It may look like we're finishing 2 Peter, but we're not. So we're getting very close, though. Next week we will finish, Lord willing, when we look over that last word, Amen. But this morning, 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18, this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I want to ask that as it goes forth this morning, you will give this congregation ears to hear so that they can respond in faith and obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do any of you have a life verse or a favorite verse? That's not a rhetorical question. You could tell me if you do. Anybody want to shout? Deb? <laughs> I put her on the spot there. No, you can just give me the verse. Okay. Okay, what is it? First Peter 1, 8, 9. Go ahead. What is it? Nice and loud. So we can pick it up in the recording. Go ahead, Deb. That's awesome. Didn't she do a great job? I didn't really mean to put her on the spot like that. I wasn't. All right. Thank you, Deb. Anybody else want to dare to give a verse now? <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, you can't have that one. That's mine. No, any any other verses? John four four, which is? He that is in the world. First John four four. Excellent. Go ahead. All right. I won't put anybody else on the spot. Um, I have a book right here. Uh, that John MacArthur signed it when I, when I saw him, and he put down 2 Corinthians 3.18. So I don't know if that's his life verse or favorite verse. Uh, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. By the way, we are going to be covering that verse this Thursday here at 7 p.m. in our small group. So if you would like to hear more about this, that verse, show up here. It's going to sound like I'm putting a commercial in there. <laughs> um, 
Vicky stole my, my verse, and in all seriousness, um, I turned to Romans 8.28 more than any other verse, um, because it's just such an encouragement to me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I just remind myself of that again and again. God has a good purpose for what I am going through right now. Uh, what might be God's favorite verse? <laughs> if you were to ask God, what is your favorite verse? Um, he might say uh, Psalm 110.1. And why would I say that? Because Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's not just an obscure, isolated verse. It is repeated again and again and again. And if you were to ask me, Pastor, what is your eschatology in a nutshell? What is your eschatology in a verse? I would say it's Psalm 110.1. Uh, Peter quoted that verse on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching. In an evangelistic message, he talked about the death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ. And then the capstone of his message was the ascension of Christ. And this is what he said. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. After the message last week, if I'm remembering correctly, someone quoted that verse. And I said, ah, I wanted to mention that verse. Because that verse is a great verse describing the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant or the old world to the new world. Because now Jesus is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. So I mentioned what might perhaps be God's favorite verse. What was Jesus's favorite self-designation? When he referred to himself in the Gospels, what title did he use to describe himself more than any other title? Anybody want to guess since we have congregation participation? Vaughn? Son of man. Very good. I wish I had like a candy bar or something I could give you. Son of man. Absolutely. And when he called himself the son of man, he wasn't so much contrasting himself with the Son of God. It's not as though he was saying, I'm the Son of God, but I also want you to know that I'm the Son of Man. As the vast majority of commentators say, when he referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was drawing attention to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Whenever you hear Jesus describe himself as the Son of Man, you instinctively need to think Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And this is what those verses say. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. Which way is the son of man going? Did you catch the direction? It's very important. I'll read it again. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. 
So you have to know who the Ancient of Days is. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. Where is God the Father? In heaven, sitting on his throne. Where is the Son of Man going? What direction? He is going to his Father. He is going up. And that is crucial because I've read commentaries on this. I read one book on prophecy. I won't mention the author. And he said, this is a prophecy referring to the second coming. And I said, it's not. Jesus is not coming from the ancient of days to earth. He's coming from earth to the ancient of days. You got it exactly backwards, which is why I'm highlighting the direction that he's going. And then it goes on and it says, and was presented before him, that is the ancient of days, and to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. At the ascension, coronation of King Jesus, all the nations were given to him so that he would rule over them. And as the writer of Hebrews might say, and if we have time, we could go on and we could talk about the earlier chapters in Daniel, which described the stone that crushed the statue, which represented all the other kingdoms of man. And then this stone became a mountain that eventually filled the entire earth, which represents the growing kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. At his first coming, he established his kingdom and his rule and his reign. Now, a great question to ask at this point, well, what about Satan? Doesn't he prowl around like a roaring lion? Didn't you talk about that? And, and Peter actually, he does. But as he prowls around as a roaring lion, we need to remember that he has been disarmed. Maybe we could say defanged. Colossians 2.15, talking about the work of Christ on the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He was defeated at the cross. He was disarmed at the cross. He was dethroned at the cross, if you will. And now Jesus reigns. And if you've been with us, you know that every single week at the end of the service, we have the Great Commission and the Benediction. And what do we have in the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 18 and following. And Jesus said to his disciples, All authority, not, not a little bit of authority, not some authority, not most authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When was he given that authority? After his death, resurrection, and ascension. He said, therefore, go. And I love what Doug Wilson says. The Great Commission is not go. The Great Commission is therefore, go. Therefore, in light of this authority that has now been given to King Jesus, you go and you make disciples of all the nations. And I love closing every week with the Great Commission because that's our marching orders. That's what we do. We go and we make disciples of all the nations, even if it's just a person at a time. Even if they're just talking to someone and say, can I share a verse with you? Can I share John 3.16 with you? But those, those are our, our marching orders. And there has been, I believe, a radical 
change that took place because of the first coming of Christ. And again, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, coronation at the right hand of God the Father. Now, I believe it's this new heavens and new earth that Jesus inaugurated. So picking up where we are in 2 Peter, let me start at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting or expecting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spots or blemish and at peace. Since you, first-generation Christians, are waiting for new heavens and new earth, what kind of people ought you to be? And then Peter is going to tell us, we are to wait for the new heavens and the new earth with four things, if you're taking notes. We're to wait for the new heavens and the new earth with love, with diligence, with hope, with knowledge. So let's, let's begin with love. Notice how Peter begins verse 14. Therefore, beloved, and then back up to Second uh, Peter 3.1. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. And then verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And then look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved. What's Peter emphasizing here? <laughs> you are loved, 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 loved of God and me. That, that is a significant thing. It's, it's not just a throw-out word because you don't know what to call somebody. You just call them beloved. I don't know if you ever, you ever go down south and you go to a restaurant and the waitress comes up and she calls you sweetie. You know, just something she calls you, you know, it sounds nice, a term of affection. By the way, I, I remember seeing a meme one time and it was a receipt from someone who went to a restaurant. And, and on the line where you could put tip, the wife put don't call my husband sweetie. So she didn't really appreciate that. Um, but taking it in the best possible way, um, Peter is reminding these Christians that they are beloved. And by the way, I have no idea why the NIV translates this, dear friends. Uh, the Greek word here is made up of agape. And you may not know many Greek words, but you might know that word. That is the Greek word for sacrificial love. That's the word we find in John 3.16. For God so agape the world, loved the world that he gave his son. And literally, it's loved ones. Not, not just dear friends. I don't know why we're toning it down. That's what it feels like to me. But it's reminding these Christians that they are loved of God. And where specifically do we most clearly see the love of God? And I hope if I were to call on you to answer, you would say the cross. This is what we read in 1 John 4, beginning at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love 
one another. So we could easily gloss over this word, therefore, beloved, but it's, it's significant because everything we do as Christians, we do as loved Christians. And as God has loved us, we spread that love to one another. So as we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, and if you want to take that as the second coming, you, you can do that. I have a different interpretation. But regardless, the application for us is we live as we lived, as loved children of God, even as we were reminded in our time of confession. We're not earning God's love. God loved us first, and everything we do flows out of that. So as we're waiting for new heavens and new earth, we do so with love. Number two, with diligence. Going back to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So this word diligence could also be translated uh, be zealous or be eager. Regardless, it implies great effort. We are to work hard to be found blameless or spotless before God. This Greek word was found a little, little earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, where Peter said, And I will make every effort, here's our word, I will make every effort so that after my departure, talking about his death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And that is the things that he wrote in this letter. In other words, he worked really hard so that we could recall these things. And he succeeded, which is why we have 2 Peter in our hands today, so that we could recall these things that he said. And we are doing so this morning, 2,000 years later. And let's remember that as we work, um, we're not working alone. I think maybe it was last week, two weeks ago, someone was talking about Charles Spurgeon and all the writings that he produced. Uh, they are volume after volume after volume. I, I have a bunch, and I, I do not have it anywhere near all of them. And I could be wrong, but if I'm remembering correctly, I heard that Charles Spurgeon produced more writings than any other living person ever. Now, even if I'm wrong, if I'm getting getting my people mixed up, regardless, what he accomplished was incredible, mind-boggling. And even in his own day, people were aware of his production. And, and on one occasion, someone said to him, how is it that you are able to do the work of two men? And he said, have you forgotten? We are two. He remembered that he was not working alone. I love Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I think that's good. Paul's saying, I work hard, I toil but I'm doing so with his energy. I'm not doing this in my own strength. Now, what are we to be diligent at? Did you notice? To be found by him without spot or blemish. Now, this I'll give you the two different interpretations. And by the way, this, this is good to do if you're you know, saying, 
Is this the correct interpretation? This one kind of weigh both options. But some take this as being spotless or blameless as a reference to justification, saying we need to be in Christ because nobody is spotless. Nobody is, is blameless. We're all, we're all flawed. And that is, that is true. But often in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to be blameless doesn't mean to be perfect, but it means to be walking in faithfulness and obedience. And part of that is confessing your sin and then thanking God for his forgiveness and then, and then moving on. So I don't think this is a reference to justification here. I think this is a reference to sanctification. Work really hard to be the Christians God is calling you to live, to be faithful, to be obedient, to live according, according to his, his word. And the question I have for you, are you trying to do that? Is it your earnest desire to please God? And I, and I hope you don't see it as a duty. I hope you don't hear that as, yeah, I guess I have to do it. If you're hearing that in a legalistic way, something, something is wrong. If we've been born again, we should want to please our Father. We should want to serve him. And our attitude should be, it is a privilege to serve him. Here's, here's a great test to know that you have the right motivation. If you look at your service as a Christian and you think, I've really sacrificed to do what, I, what I've done. Something is wrong, if I can be honest with you. What I'm doing for God is quite a sacrifice. Something really is wrong. I, I love what David Livingston said. He was a pioneer missionary to Africa. He once said, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious hereafter? Away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Whatever we do for Christ, we should consider it a privilege. I get to clean the toilets in God's church. I get to hold the door open for people on a Sunday morning. I remember on one occasion, there was a, a professor of theology, Dr. So-and-so, whoever he was, and he was, he was an usher at his church. And someone said to him, basically, isn't it beneath you, professor of theology, to be an, an usher in the church? And he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It wasn't beneath him. It was a privilege for him to be an usher, to serve in any way that he possibly could. I hope that's the mentality that we have. I, I want to be diligent in serving and serving and living as God is calling me to live. So as we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, we, we do so with love. We do so with diligence. We also do so with hope.
verse 17. Wait, wait, I, I missed something here. Wait, wait. Stay with me. Here is where we are. All right, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Uh, this is the hope of salvation. That's all due to God's patience so that we can repent. If you've been with us, we saw this two or three weeks ago. I lose track, but back in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God patient? so that we could come to repentance. And there are some wonderful stories about the patience of God. Uh, recently, this last week, I was reading a book by Randy Elkhorn called Happiness. And uh, Bob Whitek was looking at it in my office before the service, and I said, if you want to be happy, read that book. Then I was joking. I said, I have another book on my shelf called Misery, but this, this one's better, Happiness. Uh, but I was reading through that book, and he was talking about the happiness, the joy that came into his life when he became a Christian. He said, my heartfelt gladness was the result of being born again, forgiven, and indwelt by God's Spirit. The joy of your salvation stood in stark contrast to the emptiness I'd felt before hearing the gospel's good news of great joy. And then he says, my parents immediately noticed the change. Then parentheses, he said, my mom liked it, dad didn't. Then a little later he says, this life change was characterized by many factors, talking about his being born again. But the single most noticeable difference was my newfound happiness. My father, enraged that I turned to a belief he disdained, predicted I would, quote, unquote, outgrow my conversion. I'm grateful that 45 years later, I haven't. And then in parentheses, he says, I'm also grateful that at age 85, my dad trusted Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Finally, at the age of 85, his dad put his faith in Christ. And then just to finish his quote, like most of us, I've experienced suffering and heartache. Still, I regularly find happiness in the one who reached out to me with his grace decades ago and continues to do so every day. So you don't think this promise of happiness means that life is going to be a walk in the park. There's, there will be heartache. But I love that comment that he put in parentheses. His father came to Christ at 85. Perhaps some of you have a, a brother or a father or a grandfather and they still haven't come to Christ. Perhaps God is being patient with them so that they can come to repentance. So continue to pray for them. Even if you pray for them for 40 years or more, pray for them 
God is a merciful, gracious God, and we could add to that, and he's gracious and merciful with great patience. But we need to be careful here because we must not presume upon God's patience. While God himself is eternal, his patience does have a limit to it, and that limit is our lifetime. So we have to be careful. Now, it's interesting when Peter's talking about uh, the patience of God counted as, as salvation, he says, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, which he speaks in them of these matters. Now, I thought that was interesting. I was reading a commentary this last week, and the commentator said, perhaps he's referring to Romans 2. And I thought, I think he's right. And earlier in 2 Peter 3.9 when we covered that, I gave you Romans 2 as a cross-reference because that seems the clearest parallel with Paul. Uh, this, but this morning I'll give you a more extended reading. This is Romans 2, 3 through 5, where Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't presume upon God's patience. He's being kind so that you can come to repentance. But if you don't come to repentance, wrath is waiting for you. And this is one of these places where I think people like to twist the scriptures and think that God's patience and forbearance will just continue on forever. God's been patient with them and kind in this life, and he'll just continue to be that way. But that might not be the case. And we have to be careful. And people do love to twist the scriptures. And I, perhaps that's the context that Peter has in mind. We're speaking of Paul's letter. He says, there are some things in them which are hard to understand. By the way, when I was reading that during the scripture reading, I was saying, well, that's rich. Peter's saying that there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Because I would say, well, Peter, I want you to know there are some things in your letters that are hard to understand. And we just read a few of them a little while earlier which is why we're wrestling through them and we have different conclusions. But at any rate, some, some things are hard to understand. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And notice this twisting is deliberate. It's not, it's not an accident. Uh, people will twist the scriptures And it's usually because they say something they don't like. So they try to rewrite the scriptures or ignore the scriptures, but we can't do that. When we twist the scriptures, we have something that's different than Christianity. You know, it's interesting. I I had this book by J. Gresham Machen. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. He wrote this book in 1923. It is exactly 100 years old, and it is just as relevant as the day he wrote it. Maybe the issues have changed a little bit, but it's just 
as relevant. And I'll, I'll summarize the book for you so you don't have to go out and, and buy it. But what he's saying is liberalism and Christianity are not the same thing. And that is sobering. And if I can be honest with you, that is one of the most scary things that I've been thinking about in recent days. Because I think what we do is we take the scriptures, we know that they are true. So we approach the scriptures like it's a smorgasbord. We say, well, I like this verse, I like this verse, I don't like this verse, and we push it to the side and we ignore it. And we think because we're accepting of these other verses that we have Christianity, but we don't have Christianity. We have liberalism or progressive Christianity or some other Christianity, but it is not the true orthodox faith. It is our own picking and choosing. I like where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But I don't like what he says, about hell. Those verses seem too strong. You ever heard anybody say, well, my God would never send anybody to hell. This is what I say. You're right. Your God would never send anybody to hell. But your God is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, yes, is a God of love. That's why he sent his son. But there also is a hell for those who reject him. He doesn't want people to perish. He wants them to have eternal life through belief in his son. But there is a difference between Christianity and what the Bible teaches and, and liberalism, which may embrace a lot of what the Bible says, but dismiss important passages. We don't, we don't get to pick and choose. God, God has, has spoken, and we need to say, say yes and amen to all of it. That's, that's important. But while we're in this world, we do have hope. God is... God is so patient. God is so gracious. And we all know that if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. So as we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth, we do so with love, diligence, hope. And then lastly, we do so with knowledge. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A little while ago, I was listening to a radio show, and uh, they were interviewing a professor of theology, and the interviewer said, um, isn't it true that we're to have a simple, childlike faith? And if that's the case, doesn't all this knowledge get in the way? And I thought, what kind of question is that? <laughs> And the interviewer asked the question for two reasons. Either he thought that, where he had simple childlike faith and all this knowledge and theology and doctrine gets in the way, or he knew that a lot of people in the church think that theology and Bible study uh, gets in the way. So he, he tossed the professor a nice, easy, softball question so he could hit it out of the park. And I hope it was the latter of the two. He was setting up the professor. But either way, it's really a sad commentary that such a question would have to be asked in the first place as though faith and knowledge are opposed to each other am i going to be a christian with strong childlike faith or am i am i going to be a christian with not those are not opposed to each other yes paul says that knowledge can puff up 
So yes, you can have all this knowledge and, and you can abuse it and it, it can make you arrogant and, and full of yourself. And it is true that love builds up, but we are to have a love that is informed by knowledge of God's word. And if our love is not informed by God's word, it might actually be hatred. How do we know what true love looks like? Well, God tells us in his word. That's why we have passages like 1 Corinthians 13, commonly known as the love chapter, which reminds us love is patient. That's what love looks like. And kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love and truth are not opposed to each other. Love and knowledge are not opposed to each other. We're, we're to grow in knowledge so that we're not led astray by false teachers who are everywhere. And I've said this often in this series, so I might as well just repeat myself, but my prayer is for this congregation to be Bereans, to open up your Bible, to be eager to hear God's word, but examine what is said. And I'll say this again. Some of you have asked questions even in recent weeks on things that I have said, and I'm not bothered one bit by your questions. Actually, I am thankful for them because I want you to weigh everything that is said, even what I say. So we're looking for new heavens and new earth, and as I have said, um, the new heavens and the new earth were coming in the first century. Uh, some of you disagree with my interpretation. I don't know why you would disagree with my interpretation, but, <laughs> but some of you do. But even if you take it as that which is coming at the second coming, uh, the application is the same for all of us. Um, we are to look forward to meeting Christ whenever that may be with, with love being loved children of God. We're to do so with diligence, striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to live as God's calling us to live. Doing so with, with hope, maybe hope for our loved ones, that they will come to faith in Christ and we witness for them and we pray for them. And, and we're to do so with knowledge, knowledge of God as he re, has revealed himself to us in his word. God wants us to know who he is. That, that's why we have this, this big book. And again, you know you have the right attitude if you approach the Bible, not, not as a textbook. Some of you students can remember this. You know, you get your book, and you're like, oh, i got to study that thing. Rather, this, this book should be seen as God's love letter to us. I want you, want you to know how much I love you. So I've, I've written this love letter to you so that you can read it, and you can get to know me a little better, and we can grow in our relationship with each other. And If you read it that way, you have the right approach and right understanding of who God is. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. and I pray for all of us that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can live as you're calling us to live. How thankful we are that when we fall short, you forgive us and cleanse us from all our sins. You remind us that we are forgiven. And then you pick us up, you revive us strengthen us so that we can continue on in the strength that you provide. May you provide that strength to us even this morning. In Christ's name, amen.